Welcome to the Curious Climber podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to Prenna Dangi, who is a Delhi-based climber. Prenna does all sorts of different disciplines within climbing. She's very much a boulderer, a trad climber, an ice climber, and an alpinist. She's pretty much got a taste for everything, and she puts a lot of effort into being a well-rounded climber. She's very into the learning process, into developing her skills, and also into kind of enriching the community around her. We talk a lot about what it's like being a climber in India, what the differences she perceives to be in the kind of cultural spaces around climbing. Pren has spent some time in Europe, in the UK. She went to Scotland for a winter meet and then came over to Sheffield to do some training because later that year she was doing a bouldering World Cup. So she's got a kind of wealth of experience and it was really interesting talking to her about different perspectives around a bunch of different things within the climbing community. So we talk about role models, we talk about body image, we talk about the different kind of social, cultural, economic spaces and how that affects um, experiences within the climbing community. We also talk about a social enterprise called Ecofem that she's been quite involved in, which is really interesting. And I'll link to something about that in the show notes as well. And lastly, we also talk about Hampi, the bouldering area in South India and some of the recent changes that have gone on there. And she very kindly goes on to explain what that kind of means and is going to look like for the future of climbing there. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. See you next time. Maybe the best place to start is for you to give us a little bit of background on you, where you're from, how you got into climbing, because you do quite a few different types of climbing, don't you? You're kind of a boulderer, mm-hmm. ice climber, alpine mountaineer, you seem to have like quite a spread of experience. So could you talk to us a bit about how you got into all those things? Sure. Um, <clears throat> I, I, so I be, essentially, I started climbing in college because my college had a climbing wall. That's when I first came across the sport as, uh, as as a sport and something that you could do without have everybody like having to set it up for you, which is what I did in school and camping trips, right? We'd like do a rappel somewhere and um, a rock climb somewhere else. And I would always like be super psyched to do these things, even as a child. Sure. Well, I was super sports um, inclined since I was a really young kid. Um, I, I had this, I don't know, a need to be strong or, mm-hmm. or just to do something that required strength. I think it comes from having to always compete with the boys in the earlier, like in school days, where I'd be like, oh, why can't I do that? And um, a moment like that. So yeah, I didn't know where I would use the strength, but I remember in like my basketball practice, I would just like get one of my friends to come and do pull-ups with me for like no specific reason, with no end goal. And so obviously when I found climbing, it just made so much sense to um, take it up. And it was just like, okay, this is it. This is what, um, it'll, it's all going to come together for me. And um, I, I think climbing also came a little naturally to me because uh, I've spent <clears throat> a lot of time in uh, my childhood in my father's village, where, which is where we kind of grew this instinct to be in the elements of nature and like just climbing trees and going to fetch water and cut grass and graze the cattle. So um, I was always like an out and about kind of a kid. And um, 
while I was climbing, I think in my summer holidays, I ended up doing my basic mountaineering and um, my advanced mountaineering courses, which is how, like in India, we have these um, government um, supported institutions where you can attain um, certain education in mountaineering. Okay. Um, and while I was doing that, I was also doing a lot of trips. So like when I got into climbing, I went into it full throttle. I was climbing wherever it was possible to climb in Delhi. I was going in competitions because they were happening. Um, whoever was going outdoors, um, I like, and they were my friends. I would try and like get out. And um, I think I made my first like Badami and Hampi trip really early on the same year as I started climbing, 2011 the, uh, and 12, that New Year time. So I think like a bunch of these little trips and the exposure and the people that I met kind of gave me this perspective, mm -hmm. which, uh, you know, which made me want to keep doing this and in certain ways as well. I mean, I think this was also the time when I was figuring out, okay, what do I want to actually do? Because I was literally doing everything in that song. And uh, after college, when I'd done this, and I'd, I'd also been on my own like climbing expeditions with some friends, I'd been trekking with friends, and I was doing a lot more independent and self-sustained stuff because it made more sense because I didn't have to listen to somebody. Mm -hmm. I have to tell me every time what to do. And um, after college, I ended up, going on this expedition to Alaska to uh, climb Denali. Amazing. <clears throat> with, a, with a friend who, the Brazilian who lives in the Cayman Islands, <laughs> who had met in Himalayas. Um, and it was just like a random, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be studying for my exams. And she asks on Facebook, anybody wants to climb this mountain? And I don't know what mountain it is. And I'm like, welcome. Uh, just jokingly, half jokingly. And then she... Um, you know, messaged me and she's like, okay, we'll have to raise funds for this. And it, it actually came together. Cause like, obviously when I, uh, when I told my parents that, okay, uh, so this is when I have no plans of my post-college days. And uh, mm. I, I'm definitely taking a gap year without actually spelling it out. <laughs> <laughs> so they were like, yeah, sure. Go figure it out yourself. Have fun. <laughs> Because um, it's it's a bit odd for them too that this this girl has no plans, but uh, I only had climbing plans. Sure. And at that moment, they hadn't really um, um, they were involved in my climbing journey, but they were also giving me time to figure out how serious I wanted to be about it. They probably thought uh, you know it's like a thing that she's doing for a few days, and then she'll get over it and move on to like the next. Because I've been like that as a kid. I wanted to do everything, dancing, singing. But this turned out to be one of those things that I never actually could leave behind. And um, and I, I actually eventually made it to North America. I went to Alaska, climbed Denali, raised funds for it. And that gave me this these ideas about how I could continue to do this. And uh, it was a great start to my gap year. Did you have any mountaineering experience before you went on that trip? Uh, yeah, I'd been on four expeditions in the Himalayas. It was my first expedition, which I had done with, uh, uh, like, entirely by myself. 
and uh, okay. without any any guide. So it was just like two friends who were climbing the peak, and uh, we started from scratch, including just like figuring out what gear we need, what route we're going to take, how difficult it is. Mm-hmm. And I think that was like the biggest learning curve in my um, alpine mountaineering um, experience. Post that, I just got this like new uh, this new world opened up for me. And the biggest one of the biggest things that came out of that expedition, apart from the experience, was that I had my whole climbing rack, and I could like I had a whole personal climbing kit, which. once i like got back to india then like going on expeditions became a much less hassled thing to do mm. so as you have to rent equipment and this and that and um, i i began to then see this like opportunity as just really vast and yeah. like, oh my god what should i do next yeah oh cool and you've done quite a bit of ice climbing as well and is there's an international ice climbing festival in india am i right that's just happened mm-hmm. This year, can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, so, Pitidhar uh, started last year, and it's essentially like uh, this group of us climbers who um, ventured to Spiti to like look for ice initially, and uh, figured out that it's not easy to do that because it's super weather-based, it's super gear-intensive, and uh, and then it's also about skill, and we don't have already, you know, um, a, a a group of ice climbers in the country who can just be like oh come let's go and do this and we know how to do this so it was something that uh, bharat karn and i tried to figure out on this one solo trip that we did in 2015 um and uh, you know we we drove for like eight days uh managed to climb for just like a few hours because um conditions were such and also cuz it was really more like a more of a recce trip where we were like oh have you seen frozen waterfalls or do you know of any nalas that freeze in winter and the locals were super confused obviously because like nobody goes to spiti in the winter looking for uh, the coldest of the cold um so uh, it started out like that i think eventually we realized that uh, not really eventually we just like kept going every year because there was something to do uh, even if not at a very like high i don't know technical gradient and we didn't at that moment care about uh, how hard this is we just wanted to climb whatever ice we found sure. uh, like we saw everybody else do in the international scene so that has now become an annual thing uh, where spiti is being seen by a lot of people as ice climbing mecca of um india because there's accessible water ice and in winter a lot of the roads close in the mountains so um one of the reasons why spiti is uh, is the space where you can uh, go because you can literally access it by access it by road um otherwise we have like snow everywhere on the passes where we have roads and fortunately the ice is great and it's plentiful there's uh, so much to still explore so it's really a great playground that's opened up and uh, there's still but we still feel that there's like a lack of mentorship and um and to sort of help build that the um festival came about to to give 
people who are interested or who want to first test the limits against ice. And these are mostly people who already come from a mountaineering background or a climbing background. So um, that really helps because you're not starting from complete scratch. Sure. And, uh, um, and, and then, you know, if, and the hope is that eventually there will be an ice climbing community in India where people will be able to independently go and like climb the routes, climb new lines, safely and um, and we're also trying to get international climbers experienced climbers to come and be a part of it somehow while they like come on their own trip mm. to just give a bit of their time to um, help learn as much as we can sure what's the climbing scene like I mean I guess across discipline what's the climbing scene like in India mm-hmm. just like a general sense of like are, is there a big climbing scene in India or is it still something that you feel is developing? The Indian climbing scene right now is booming, I think. It's like in a revolutionary time where a lot of new things are happening. A lot of new areas are being developed uh, and a lot of uh, people who are actually spending time on developing these areas Mm -hmm. um, in all um, spheres of climbing, in bouldering, in sport climbing, in trad climbing, a little slower, but still it's happening. Um, Alpine-wise as, as well. But at the same time, there's also, you know, there's like also commercial things, like the, the sport becoming a little commercialized. There's new climbing gyms coming up. Mm-hmm. And um, there's different uh, mergings that are happening, I think, which are kind of um, bringing this um, sometimes conflict or sometimes just, I think there are just like um, new things popping up. And it, it's also um, like ethics, you know, questions of ethics and uh, who gets to bold, who doesn't get to bold. Um, and I mean, that's also one of the things that it's also one of the, we don't have a lot of um, funds for bold. So a lot of people who want to develop areas are not being able to develop areas, et cetera. Um, mm. But it's a great time because a lot of things that have not been spoken of are being, you know, spoken about. And uh, the scope of climbing in the country is coming to people in front of people's eyes. It's pushing everyone to try and uh, not not claim, but to kind of like make the most of it. Mm. And different communities across the country are doing that in their own ways. And the conflicts probably come when like somebody doesn't agree with somebody from across the country. But uh, I think that's how um, development happens. I mean, there's going to be a mixed, mixed uh, response. It's a great time for climbing because there's festivals that are happening in places which are otherwise hard for a lot of people to access with crash pads, et cetera. Developing uh, is becoming a more it's not only a few bunch of people that are developing. There's a lot of uh, a lot of intermediate climbers even are being given the chance to come to places which are remote uh, and and still contribute to this developing scene to see first an expert do it and then realize that oh it's actually not so hard. You just have to climb this route, uh, this boulder, and uh, I think that's really great. Mm-hmm. And within um, the smaller communities, there's I, I feel like we have a set of 
really hardcore climbers as well, where there's people who are only to crack climbing, like Arvind, a friend from Bangalore, is probably like the crackhead mm. of India. And he, and, and you know, so we all kind of know each other, you know, Dil is developing the Satan scene and um, Sohan's like contributing to Bangalore with bolts, etc. So apart from just Humpy, Badami, around the cities, there are communities that are growing and becoming more um, independent and mm. uh, climbing uh, and making climbing more accessible for everyone. Sure. And actually, Dylan Chandramauli, he wrote an article recently for Outdoor Journal where he talked about, I think the title of the article was Why Aren't More Women Climbing? in India and he talked quite a lot about safety issues do you feel like that's something um that you experience I I think on a very frontal level it's true that less women go outdoors because it's not safe uh just like in general a lot of the places in India are not safe uh and then on top of that going to like like just recently we went with the Delhi crowd to um, to see this new bouldering area and it's like you had to go through this really dense slum sort of a locality and then walk into this like um, this little park next to the fort and it was strewn with um, injections. So, you know, like, you know that it's like a druggy den and uh, if I'm there, I mean, I wouldn't be go there with just one female friend or even one male friend we were a big group big group of people and uh, we had an audience mm-hmm. and it's it's not uh, a very reassuring thought that uh, you know um, like anything could happen really anything can happen so I don't think about it too much but it's definitely a reality mm. I have trained myself to not uh, you know be or like too concerned because like the more you think about it the more it actually feels like it might happen to you but sure. even in Dhoj you know safety has been an issue uh, Dhoj is this trad planning place that we go to it's uh, on the outskirts of Delhi and uh, we've had I've had instances where there's little 14 year old kids who would hang around right next to your anchors and if you don't give them enough attention which, or, or even money. Sometimes they ask you a hundred questions about what you're doing, which is fine. You can answer that. And then in the end, they want like to either climb or they want to use um, some of your gear to play with or they, or sometimes they just ask for money. Mm-hmm. And if you say no, uh, then they like, I, I, they either like abuse you or, or they like put up some sort of a show sometimes. And I've had this instance where I was with a female friend and they, they were just like saying words, um, vulgar words and like about like female body parts, just randomly saying them out loud. And these were like really young kids. And uh, I, while I was like uncomfortable, I confronted them and, uh, you know, they didn't seem to care. Like I said, like it's something that I'm used to and I'm choosing to always like confront, but that's not a great place for you know, women to have a good time climbing outside. Yeah, I can imagine it puts up a bit of a barrier if you if you think that 
you might have an experience like that when you go out climbing for some people that would be enough to stop them going yeah in the article and I'll, I'll quote him here he said that there was a systemic separation of genders which resulted in an uncomfortable adult interactions so he 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 was kind of saying that it culminates in stability of gender roles leaving women essentially with less agency which I guess is kind of what you're saying there's less kind of ability to just without thinking too much about it to just get up and go climbing and that that comes from a greater social problem yeah yeah I I agree I think it's also just uh, less women in the outdoors so uh, guys used to being around guys men used to see more men do things like this and then when a girl does come into the space this male-dominated space then they then don't know how to act around women Mm. and uh and the same like thing for women too I guess although like I feel like women are more used to just having to be around men all the time if they are going into a male-dominated space but I feel like there's uh, a lack of this understanding of how uh, to mutually exist in a space and work together and like play together Mm. and that you know obviously comes from a lot of like other social constructs that are more deeply rooted but also um what was the can you repeat the first bit the the part where you quoted him he said something about the he said he said systemic separation of genders which resulted in uncomfortable adult interactions so essentially that as you grow up the the genders are quite he implied separated in Mm -hmm. india and then it it almost creates more problems in an adult sphere Yeah. yeah yeah i mean we've been like always in class in school, we had to have a separate girl sit together and guys sit together in, in the classrooms. And even later on, I think only after we were in the high school, there was this merging. Mm. And in general, like being a sports person, I remember every single time. And even now, in sometimes in our um, in the, in the nationals and the zonal competitions, there would be lines. They would ask us to stand in line when there would be like a speech or something like that. And there would be a girl's line. And there'll be a guy's line. So there's always been this separation um, that is almost forced upon to each of the genders. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously contributed to both the genders not understanding how to uh, positively interact, how to treat each other as people. And I find that um, happens a lot when we're at the gym, even. And uh, me, Vinda, who's opened the Bolton Gym in Delhi Boulder Box, which is where we train together a lot. Uh, there's obviously like fewer women; we're mostly outnumbered. And um, sometimes I'm, I feel like uh, I'm not comfortable with the way the guys are always motivating each other or or how they hang around each other. And um, all that I do is I extract myself from that environment and I go to a different corner of the gym. But a lot of times I want to express myself and tell them that. Uh, maybe this can be done in a way where I don't feel like this because this is a common space. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's rowdy. I, I'm not saying I don't like to be, like maybe at some point to also be rowdy, but if it's like rowdy all the time, mm-hmm. uh, it's just not fun. And the fact that I actually, the number of times I stop myself from conveying that to them and just sucking up to like whatever's happening and just being okay with it or to like procrastinate it for later when I feel more bad about this, maybe I'll convey that. Yeah. Okay. You know? Yeah. Uh, I see so that. 
and these guys are friends. A lot of them, I know they don't mean uh, but any like anything bad, or they don't intentionally, you know, want to create that atmosphere. But automatically, they are the way they behave leads to that. And the fact that they don't realize it is, you know, what Dylan's probably talking about. Yeah. No, absolutely. There was another article, actually, not not by Dylan, but um, about battling social stereotypes. It was it was in Outdoor Journal again, and I think you were quite heavily featured in the article. And it talked more about kind of body image and gender bias within climbing. Is body image something that comes up for you? Yeah, um, we're still a developing nation. We still have a lot of grassroots problems, and there's still a lot of emphasis on looks and a lot of different expectations from women. Um, I'm not saying that they don't exist in other countries, but it's um, um, much more prevalent in on a day-to-day basis mm. over here. I've been, I've been a perpetuator of it in my earlier days. Okay. And so I understand that it's something that is very difficult to look at objectively. And it takes a long time of uh, unlearning the conditioning that you've been brought up in and to like then um, to set it aside and like see people as people. And in India, the idea of a strong woman is is very, it's only like in seen in a goddess form of a way. Because uh, we have, by Hindu mythology, we have, a lot of um, goddesses who are supposed to be extremely mm. strong, uh, but in more of a, I don't know, divine way. Uh, they don't look strong. Strength doesn't always have to be visible like that, mm-hmm. especially for climbers. Certainly for me, as my body changed when I started climbing and I was already athletic, there was a lot of um, constant observation. I felt that people felt very comfortable, mostly men felt very comfortable to express how they, what they thought about my body all the time, oh. all the time. And that definitely made me uh, uncomfortable. Uh, if not the fact that I was actually like changing, mm. you know, that I was becoming more muscular and uh, I was being able to, it meant that I was getting stronger. So that's great for me. But to have that pointed out incessantly uh, was not fun at all. Yeah. And uh, I think that in India, we have this habit of always like, you know, you meet somebody after a long time, you comment uh, on their, on how they look. And there's just this like um, openness. And I don't think, I don't say it in a positive way, but it's like, uh, lack of apprehension in people to talk about somebody's physical appearance without giving it a second thought, um, you know, and, and not thinking that, you know what, that's not my business. Sure. And to like look beyond the physical, I think uh, that's something that we have to learn a little mm-hmm. bit. And uh, so it becomes very like what this person looks like, the, what they can do is only limited to what they look like. Mm-hmm. So, I felt, uh, uh, you know, quite um, deterred by it in between. And I would have, like, great comebacks for everybody who said something to me. But uh, I, at, after one point, I grew tired of it. And it, was, it started to become quite annoying. 
like you have I to wear kind of psychological armor when you go into yeah. those spaces. Mm. I mean, I've had somebody at the IMF wall, which is the Indian Engineering Foundation, which is in Delhi. It used to be the one wall where everybody trained. And they are, they, this is a place where there's people from uh, very different backgrounds. There's some like army people training for the competitions. And uh, there's like um, some families there. And there's like always newbies and experts coming in. And uh, somebody once told me, you're such a great climber, but uh, why do you wear clothes like uh, that are revealing? <laughs> and that was what I was wearing, and maybe like a tank top or something like that. So that's, that's really uncalled for. And when I was not a very established climber, all of these things would throw me off completely. Mm. And it would, I mean, firstly, the thought would be that this guy doesn't like have the right to say that to me. But, you know, I would think about it so much that it would just uh, literally the next time that I would wear whatever the hell I wanted to wear, I would, this, this thing would, you know, pop up inside my head. And uh, that's horrible. That's yeah. like really sad. And it's so, such a waste um, of energy, isn't it? I guess that's one yeah. of the big things that gets me about, you know, all this stuff is that you can end up spending a lot of your mental reserves and bandwidth worrying or thinking about, you know, mm -hmm. um, whether you're going to get a comment about some, something to do with how yeah. you look or whether you're going to get wearing. certain, yeah, exactly, effectively what you look like and what you're wearing. And yeah. we have better things to, to be thinking about and spending yeah, our energy absolutely. on, for sure. Um, did you have good role models when you were getting into climbing? Uh, no, no, I think. <laughs> um, there were some climbers who were climbing really strong and uh, who... I would try and emulate, but it was hard because uh, there was just like a huge gap in the level of climbing. There was very less interaction. There was a little bit of probably intimidation. I don't actually think I was very intimidated, at least in, I, I mean, I, I felt okay to ask questions to whoever, mm -hmm. uh, because I still saw very good climbers as people, right? And mm. But um, there was there was no uh, role models who I saw that I could actually become because they were all guys, right? Um, and they were already so strong, right? And there was no um, no process that I could relate to, and uh, I definitely felt the dearth of a female role model. Like I wish there was a woman who at that point was climbing um, hard so that I could at least like, uh, you know, uh, hope to be like her or to like learn from her. And, yeah. but I mean, the fact that there are strong women climbers were still existed because like they were in other parts of the country. There were some of the strongest female climbers. And I was, and I think that time, like Instagram was just, Facebook was just about like coming up. And so there was a lot of exchange of information happening on those platforms. And I was like reading a lot of uh, magazines online and all of these articles on Alex Puccio and, uh, you know, Lynn Hill, of course, sure, Alison yeah. Hargreaves and, and Hazel. I mean, I, I remember feeling like 
she was the one uh, climber that I could relate to the most okay. because because she has this round square face uh, like I do <laughs> and she doesn't like I felt like you know she is such a good climber but she looks different from the athlete uh, she looks different from the other athlete uh, competition climbers um, and they are like extremely skinny with muscles popping out and not everybody can be that but you don't have to be that to be a good climber no absolutely and uh, so it was it was a really positive image for me and another reason i actually related to her was because i had a labrum injury and she had like a a tear in her shoulder somewhere as well mm. so that she she was writing about her injury and her recovery and i was like yep that's my soul sister <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so there was i basically wanted to see somebody who i could relate to more right uh and and yeah uh, we didn't have a lot of those. i think i would ask people like you know did we have some really strong climbers back in the day i think bangalore had some some uh, really strong women climbers who were climbing 7d boulders oh, and really? uh, getting on the eight sport suits uh, back in the day uh, but yeah i mean I, i we didn't have any like anything written even a photo you know how much a photo graph sure. can motivate you uh, to push yourself Yeah. Um, That's so interesting that you say that about Bangalore because um I actually went to school in Bangalore for a year when I was oh, wow. a young kid and uh, but it was before I started climbing but I kind of feel like that's where my climbing started because although I didn't rock climb when we were there I climbed a lot on like we had a jungle gym at school and um mm-hmm. I think because obviously I before that I'd grown up in the UK and you know it rained quite a lot and so suddenly you know we spent this year in india and i was playing outside all the time running around barefoot and like climbing trees climbing uh, on this jungle gym at school and then so when we moved home to the uk i just wanted to climb everything and my parents you know found out climbing was a thing took me to a climbing wall and that's really where it started so it's interesting that you say because it was you know it was uh, i was how old like 7 8 years old so it's you know like oh, 94 95 so i wonder if that was the same time that there were some women climbing hard in bangalore and um yeah maybe i think so oh, funny yeah, well sometimes interesting <laughs> yeah um i'm asking about role models as well because there's also a there's climb like a woman initiative that you're involved mm-hmm. in and i wondered if that was maybe you could talk a bit about that and i wondered if that was a kind of way of creating more visible role models so claw happened at this like really interesting time when um i knew there were like women in different parts of country i had seen their social media i'd interacted with a few of them because i was in the comp scene so i went around and i met a few of them but i wasn't friends with a lot of them or and i really wanted to like climb with more women i was just like hoping that maybe i will arrive at the same crag at some point and you know there'll be that connection then um but gauri a climber from bangalore came up with the idea to do this women's climbing meet and this was when uh, and, and she shared it with a bunch of us women that she knew we'd met on a recent badami trip and that's how it actually like um, you know that's where that first connection in that sense happened and it's important for 
helping people to actually spend some time on each other and what better than a climbing trip because that's all you need to know something uh, to know everything about a person um and um you know she was like hey let's do this and they were like yeah absolutely and um we pulled off the first edition and it was a hit it was just like so obvious that people the women were craving almost to have mm-hmm. this space where they can uh learn something new without judgment because i think we're just used to a lot of that and you know in general climbing being such an intimidating sport which is something that we we all concurred with um we felt that this was a great way to um you know initiate more women into the sport give them a chance maybe they like it maybe they won't like it but at least they'll have uh, you know a place where they they can just be themselves and try the sport and not have to worry about the other things that maybe some of us faced mm-hmm. and and we and it's not like um that oh this and this happened to us so it's going to happen to you too it's not uh you know a place where uh, we would want to give this message out but um you know we talk during some of our meals about just the climbing scene in india and how being a woman is different or it feels different uh but at the end of the day you still have to go out and climb with the community and the community includes men mm-hmm. so um it's just to give a starting point uh, a, a good starting point a safe starting point you know like i think it's also a great place for them to see somebody who's experienced and somebody who's confident in their skill to actually physically execute it because that uh, visibility and that representation is very important and so as much as we see it on instagram and facebook and on videos it leaves a deeper impact when you see somebody in blood and flesh climbing something that you feel is unimaginably hard cuz like i feel like that's what i needed i needed somebody in blood and flesh climbing on those imf walls the things that i thought were like, super scary the roof wall which i could like never get past and uh and it's yeah it's i think it's like uh a lot of the women were also just i think they needed this like place to be with other women too it's really like i mean it just the thing goes on to show how much we uh, lack spaces like that mm. apart from like the kitchen where it seems is where all indian women seem to <laughs> the household kitchen um but i mean i feel that literally because whenever i have my family over all the women are in the kitchen so it's just it's part of our culture this is like where we see it happening so it's great to see to show women that you know you have to also take the initiative this is a women's initiative mm. so like this is i feel like one of the messages that's also important is that uh you have to get out on your own and like try and get to get after those things that you really want to do not every time they're going to there's going to be an easy path but sure. it's important to pursue it with you know seriousness and and to try like for me a lot of the climbing that I wanted to do um and i had this like path charted out in on my route to becoming an alpinist to become an alpinist um still in process uh because right after uh, i did denali and i came back and i did some more expeditions i did thagi rathi um i 
give myself this honor oh i can do like a bunch of more expeditions and then like have these uh, ascents in my checklist and then that particular year when i was supposed to do my checklist i could not do anything and mm. that's when like the whole it dawned upon me that okay mountains is not are not something that are going to go down like uh, in a checklist form and it's something that needs a, a lot of time almost a lifetime sometimes mm. and uh, i kind of talked out this plan to take it slowly and to focus on uh, my foundation and and the different aspects which will actually help me climb the things that i wanted to climb which was unexplored routes in the in the himalayas because we have so much of that and uh most so much of that which is being explored mostly by westerners and it intrigued me the stories that i read in the books how these guys could climb such steep vertical walls such technical terrain and not lose their heads while they were doing that mm. but um it made so much sense because uh, when i went to the scottish winter climbing meet and uh we were climbing in the cairngorms or we were climbing like this uh, 100 meter mixed route and i'd never done winter climbing before and there's like a fierce gale blowing mm. <laughs> um and then we you know we topped out this great uh but it just made so much sense that if this is what you know the brits and the scots get to do as a fun activity or just like as you know is this is part of their climbing scene it it just it seems obvious that they're able to execute the routes that they do in the himalayas because um you know it's like when you practice on a much harder terrain you're able to then like take it to a different place and do it because you've done it enough number of times mm. we can't do himalayan expeditions 10 times a year no but you yeah. can probably do like 10 or more routes in the kangons and in other places with more accessibility etc and i mean we went back to the glenmore lodge after that and we're having wine and it just becomes much more comfortable as a place to push yourself yeah right and it it dawned upon me then that you know this is like i think i need to train uh, myself in the different elements and training doesn't happen in a place where you're constantly pushing you need to come back to comfort to recover Mm-hmm. but it's a really huge plan so i have uh so i have like years of rock climbing so until i am too old to like mm-hmm. <laughs> say that no, there's nothing like getting too old to climb i think but um just to it makes sense that there's like a prime time for sports like bouldering and um it connected itself really well because i actually started with trail climbing mm-hmm. and i was trail climbing more and i was going to dodge a lot looking for partners to go to gorge and because i've always mostly been on lead because there's not enough like climbers that go out a lot in the country so i would like look for people who would at least give me a belay and i realized that i was not i needed like to find this flow in my climbing i was like scared and i wanted to make better decisions while i was climbing and i didn't know what was up there and if i was supposed to be thinking about protection or climbing more so uh while one was like a head game i felt like okay let's get uh you know more smoothness into my climbing flow and i i, I then like planned this badami climbing trip 
Mm-hmm. We only have very few sports climbing tracks. Uh, a lot of the Bangalore, a lot of Bangalore um, has sport, but the nature of the climbs are more slabby. Mm-hmm. They're really technical and it's beautiful. But um, I wanted something more vertically challenging. So I went to Badami and then I was like, uh, I tried to get more uh, volume in mm-hmm. for climbing. And eventually the gym opened and then I started bouldering a lot. And that helped because I was like, oh yeah, because I think I need power. So, so from bouldering, I came from sport climbing, I came to uh, boulder a lot. And I actually just recently started to think of myself as a boulderer because that's all I was doing in those days. And uh, now I'm like mixing it, taking it back up. I think I'm going to go back to sport now because I've done enough yes. of that. But at the same time, there was ice climbing happening at the right season. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think like it's because it's a long time, it will probably take a while to uh, come together. But I have a, I have an expedition planned for post-monsoon uh, in the Himalayas. And it'll be really nice to see how, how at least whatever I've trained in so far, um, you know, how it takes place. Mm. but it's great isn't it with climbing like regardless of almost what your goals are all the different types of climbing feed into each other really nicely yeah like you mm-hmm. say bouldering you know it's, it's hard to imagine that bouldering is going to help you on on alpine expeditions but but mm-hmm. it will do for sure because it's that yeah. kind of that strength side of things yeah and yeah, so absolutely. you mentioned coming over because that was that was when you came over to Scotland that was the BMC winter climbing meet right but then mm-hmm. you also ended up doing a bunch of competition bouldering type stuff on that same trip didn't you because that's where we first mm-hmm. um right. you came to Sheffield for a while and you did some training with Tom Greenall that was the was that the year or the year before there was India's first bouldering world cup that was the year that uh, India was going to host the first world cup 2016 yeah yeah like I said I was in Scotland for the winter climbing meet and uh, I had a three-month stamp on my passport I literally at the end of the meet I I asked Becky and I asked some of the organizers for a place where I could train in bouldering and everybody obviously said go to Sheffield Um, and it was still something I was thinking about because I didn't know anybody in Sheffield and I would have had to think about the cost for staying there for so long Uh, fortunately um, so I put up like a post on Facebook and this one girl who was in who was doing her basic course when I was doing my advanced course in uh, mountaineering um, happened to be studying at the Sheffield University mm. and uh, Amrita and she's like oh yeah you can like why don't you come and uh, you know stay here and I was like what for three months really <laughs> uh, and it just it happens and that's and that's great like I was it was another like super unique experience in my life where I was pretty much just I was living in a student's uh, house and uh, I was just climbing every day when I was training and that's when um, I got a lot of experience on trad because there's so much trad in the peak district mm. um, and I happened to be in one of the best gyms in the world I think climbing works just as a space to climb in and the people and the vibe was so positive I just felt so lost 
without all the chaos that I was used to otherwise. <laughs> um, and the heat and the mosquito bites. Uh, but I remember being literally being lost because there was so much to climb. I didn't know where to start. I had so many things that I had to work on. Uh, I had only trained once before that in a systematic way where I was following this online program. Um, and to, at that point, get Tom's help was, uh, you know, huge for me. And um, there was a lot of, you know, each of our sessions made me realize how much I had been holding back in terms of climbing because of a certain expectation that I had created for myself from actually from feedback from others where, wherever I was climbing before that. And, and that was misguided because uh, this expectation is supposed to come from our own our own selves, I feel mm. like, you know, your strength, you know, your weakness, and then you set a goal and that goal is your expectation. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of this, another third person who has seen you climb five, six times to say that you should be climbing this grade in so much time. So did you feel like that other people's expectations limited your performance? Like people didn't think you could do more than a certain amount and therefore you didn't think you could do more than that? Yes, uh, to a certain extent. And also because uh, other people's, you know, advice, and in, we love giving advice, free advice all the time, whether people need it or not, uh, was it, it kind of like put me in a space. It was very generic. It was very vague. It was like bad beta mm-hmm. that will never work for me. That, oh, do this and then you will get better at climbing. Um, you know, or just do this and then you'll get better at climbing. Sure, okay. So uh, so it was really helpful to have somebody who observed what you could do and then, uh, you know, gave you a feedback on it. Because mm-hmm. I never actually got feedback on my climbing. I always got told what to do. I w- nobody was telling me, hey, look, this is what you're doing. This is how you could maybe try and do it differently or better. Mm. And that perspective, along with uh, climbing with other people over there, you know, open, because also visually what I saw was a lot of people who, in my head, the idea of strong, which was always Alex Puccio, mm-hmm. <laughs> they didn't look like Alex Puccio, but they were climbing hard. Mm. And um, that, that was a really like great learning for me. And I basically stopped completely um judging people on the basis of judging climbers it was mostly like just being intimidated from even trying something because a stronger looking climber was climbing it is something that I did a lot of okay. I mean uh, the amount of doubt I think that I had uh, and I think it was also because I didn't want to have commentary you know because I didn't want like people to be like um telling me 10 more things that I stopped myself short of trying a route that was too hard for me and always there were a bunch of people who would who'd anyway point out, oh, but that's too hard for you to even try. Mm. Um, and I'm not saying something ridiculously hard, but for a woman to even, um, you know, or as, as one of the fewer women who were climbing mostly around with the guys, to even try and do something that, that wasn't expected out of me, it, I felt like it challenged people and that it made them like say that uh, to like maybe show you your your place in that sense and I see that happening a lot with 
new climbers in general uh, were, uh, you know, an expert climber who would misguide them by telling them to only climb a certain way or to like just not let people try. I think I was really affected by this attitude and eventually it just became this huge uh, block inside me which stopped me from trying harder stuff mm. and more fear than I actually felt. Yeah. So I broke through that barrier in Sheffield in the Climbing Works gym and I started seeing problems uh, because in a way that Tom used to explain it, he used to just break it down in movement and then it wasn't about, you know, a Myrtle route that is so hard or, <laughs> um, and, and yeah, that, that kind of became the way I started to see climbing after that, even the outdoor trips that I had. And I made some really great girlfriends, some really strong climbers who, I think the fact that they were also not in the competition or they were just climbing for fun, mm. it brought such a, like a freshness because I was like coming from this whole like competition scene in Delhi and, and in the country in general. And there was always like, you know, competition. Even if we were climbing for fun, there was competition. Mm. And it was not, it, I feel like that's not a very great vibe to grow in. At yeah. least in the initial days, because it feels like if you're not a hard climber, then you don't get to call yourself a climber. And then that plays more into the kind of mental side. It's really interesting, isn't it, how we often think of climbing as like, you know, the physical things being the barrier, you know, not being strong enough, not being fit enough. But a lot of what you're saying, and I think a lot of people will connect with, is that your mind can hold you back so much in so many different mm -hmm. ways. And sometimes breaking through those barriers of whether it's just seeing it from a different perspective or, you know, expanding what you think of as your comfort zone or your limitations can be really yeah. powerful. Yeah, but you need absolutely. the right environment to do that in. And a competitive environment day after day is a really mm -hmm. hard space to kind of grow in. Yeah. And how did you find it when you did your first um, World Cup? When I left from the UK, each day of my climbing had been so positive and I basically like went there with this went back home with this like new sense of why I climb, why I want to climb. I love this movement and uh, what my strengths are, what my weaknesses are and um, and how I can like get better. And mm -hmm. also apart from that, I went back with a uh, lesson on also how to be around climbers and be sure. a good climbing partner. And um, so, you know, it was like a, I started to see climbing as a more, wholesome thing and not just my performance so when I went back from UK I took that back with me and um, you know I started to enjoy other processes of just like watching other people cheering them on spotting them well and um, finally like I, I felt that like it was lost upon me earlier it was lost upon a lot of my fellow participants as well I had changed in Sheffield, but uh, everybody, everything else was the same. And people mm. were like in competition mode. And there was obviously a lot of expectation from me, especially having uh, come from the UK with the special training, you know. Mm. And um, I guess they were expecting me to win a bronze medal or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I was, I think, amongst the last five or something in mm. that World Cup. In terms of how I felt, I was 
super nervous, but I was able to you know, remember all of those things that Tom had taught me. I went into each folder with a plan and um, in whatever was in you know front of me, I, I guess I tried to do my best. It may not have looked like that because it's such a different, like if you haven't been in that space, it's very difficult to imagine what it's like. And yeah. there's a lot a lot of hard work that goes in and a lot of time spent competing and being in that high pressure environment that goes behind these athletes who perform so amazingly uh, or even not who, who put in so much effort in their climbing that it looks effortless. Mm. And I was obviously like not at that point. Something that I'd already like learned when in my earlier sessions with Tom was that the, these three months of training are, uh, you know, only like the foundation work, and this uh, this this kind of competition level climbing needs so much more in terms of just training your mind and your body. Mm. I yeah, I also felt that, uh, you know, the the sword was hanging over me. Like all of these three months of training would, uh, you know would be seen, I would somehow be able to showcase that in the four minutes I got on the four boulders problem. That's a lot of pressure. And uh, it's and my parents had come to watch as well. And uh, they were so watching a World Cup for the first time. And they were just amazed. They were like, how did those people do it so easily? And how could, you, was it really that easy? And if so, then why weren't you able to do anything? Uh, you know, okay. and it's really hard to explain uh, not just to a non-climbing person, but in general, how things are different when you're, you're uh, on the comp wall. Mm. Despite, you know, having some, have, knowing that I have this expectation and not meeting it, I was okay to like, you know, have had that experience because of all the things that I learned in it. And and I cannot change uh, the way other people think. It's something that I'd already accepted. Mm. So I wasn't going to spend too much time thinking about that. And I was really excited to come to know when I go outdoors and climb, except that uh, on the last day, I had another silly fall and um, I re-injured my torn labrum. Mm. And this was something that I've been struggling with since 2013. Mm. Probably my first set of comps petitions uh, I just like fell in a bad way and uh, I had to just uh, deal with this injury which psychologically um, made me quite weak in terms of trusting myself and doing funny sure. moves and mm-hmm. dynamic moves so I eventually yeah, ended up deciding to take uh, do a shoulder reconstruction surgery okay. and um, it's only like in 2018 I think where I started to believe in myself again mm-hmm. as a climber and um, and it's kind of like my second innings where I'm coming yeah. back, um, and it's, it's been and I feel like a different person. So it's been transformational. Oh, good! I'm glad that's on the mend. One of the things I wanted to ask you about actually was the social enterprise ecofem. Uh, so I think somewhere around the time when I was um, restarting my climbing after getting injured, I found the social enterprise based out of Pondicherry that was making sanitary pads out of cotton. 
mm-hmm. and uh, and other menstrual products that were sustainable and environmentally, you know, more positive. So I wrote to them, and uh, I was like, "Is this something that I can take with me and like help spread word about and distribute in um, in more remote places?" And I think it worked out really well. And they were like, "Yeah, we've never had somebody." who comes from this kind of a background to mm-hmm. like talk about this. And when people say this kind of a background, I feel like uh, it's just that it's very different climbing and occupying the outdoor space in, in a somewhat risky way mm-hmm. uh, that makes it different. But uh, it actually helps. It's so self-contemplative and helps uh, just understand you, you and your surroundings so much better. Mm-hmm. And it was part of the reason that when I would go climbing and I would go for expeditions where we'd spend some time on in the last village and uh, you know we'd get to interact with the people who reside in those villages. And they would always have this, uh, you know, they would treat us, treat us with so much hospitality. Like even me as an Indian, uh, they would treat me differently because I look different in terms of the equipment that I am carrying and the mm. color, color clothing that I am wearing. But like sometimes when I was in Uttarakhand, because I'm from Uttarakhand and I can speak the local dialect, I would like suddenly surprise them by like talking and then they'd be like, oh, oh this girl like knows how to speak our language. Mm. Um, so I realized that I needed a way to to, to do something uh, more than just like climb in these people's spaces, in their homes. Uh, and these outdoor spaces were their homes. These were places where they were, uh, you know, making a life out of. And we would just like go there, have a great expedition, get all of this applause, applaud from everybody uh, for going somewhere so remote. But uh, that, that project that, you know, or that expedition um, comes from a place that is home to a lot of people. And I I felt a bit, I don't know, irresponsible for just not doing anything about it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, not all the time. Sure. But it was something that would come up and then I would, you know, maybe forget about. And uh, and it's really, it was really difficult to think of a social cause because I wasn't in, I wasn't um, money-wise in a place where I could support something that that would um, actually make a difference and mm. I didn't have the time to actually start a social uh, you know philanthropic um, endeavor so it came down to me um, realizing that the most uh, basic most primal thing that I as a woman can talk to another woman about is periods and menstruation Mm-hmm. And um, it's obviously a huge taboo in India. Still, I mean, even in the city, the, there's only uh, post school. I think is when me and my male friends began talking about it coolly. So I know that this uh, free speech uh, about around this topic is still in the process. It's not something that's easy for people to speak about. Mm-hmm. And uh, the best way to deal with that is to speak about it and to normalize it. Sure. So um, I joined hands with them and I started with just uh, trying to organize some funds from wherever I could. And uh, then I would 
buy a bunch of pads and then I would go and if it so this one time it was in Suru where uh, Jamyang kind of organizes this uh, bouldering festival. Mm-hmm. It's uh, 45 minutes ahead of Kargil, which uh, um, is which was a war zone um, at a point in history in India, and it was so interesting because this uh, community over there, and it is a Muslim-dominated place, uh, but you know, like it's things like this which help me to um, become sort of more intertwined with this community. Mm. And without having to, you know, think of, I don't know, barriers of any sort or without me having to uh, give uh, some sort of a fancy reason for why I want to do this. It's, I really like the fact that it's like very basic mm. and it is needed everywhere, the fact for this to be spoken about more. Uh, also, cloth as uh, cloth has been used for the longest time in India uh, for menstruation. It's just that the practices have somehow like oh, have been unhealthy and that has led to problems. And then we shifted to plastic, mm-hmm. uh, and and we like not even knowing the kind of problems that that can create because mm. you don't know what goes in the plastic that uh, makes sanitary pads that are used and through. And while our lives are mostly now governed by convenience-based articles, it was for me also personally a thing which I did to reduce my carbon footprint. And it made so much sense to spread the word and to encourage other people to um, take it up as well. And I think the response has been great. And yeah, I I feel like every time I go climbing, uh, there's always people in, you know, living in not the best conditions and uh, need a lot of changes. But uh, where I can help is just like something very primal and something that will actually go on to make a bigger difference eventually. So um, it's, I'm trying to currently figure out how to create uh, a way to generate funds for this because I otherwise approach uh, individuals mostly or, or brands that would want to fund this endeavor. And it's very, it's, the project right now is very small. Like I would get like a 60 to 100 pads and I would distribute it in a school. And the schools here don't have like a lot of, uh, you know, girls as well or students. Uh, and when I went to Spiti, we did one with the high school over there. And um, uh, I was—I actually spoke to the SPM and they re- they really want me to do one for the Nandaris because mm. there's a lot of women and they are in need for, um, you know, help. Um, and I think this is also a good entry point for me as an outdoors woman to uh, become friends with or to show myself um, as a person who does something that's different and for mm-hmm. them to see it as a possibility because I think that <clears throat> representation because I don't know if you know in the villages when Instagram is going to reach because it mm-hmm. probably will at some point sure. but for them to see this person who is um, climbing um, and she's a woman mm-hmm. is, uh, is impactful I think sure. so instead of just being this uh, climber who gives 
a lecture on uh, all the clients that I've done, I get introduced to these uh, smaller groups of women and girls as uh, a friend. Because when we can reconduct uh, our menstruation workshops, um, you know, you, it, it's a very personal and intimate topic. Mm. And it's difficult to um, get people to speak about their experiences. Mm. So we have to conduct it in a way where, you know, we, we all come out on this ground as one. And mm. you start probably with your own experience. And you normalize it so that, you know, people feel comfortable to share their own. And uh, it's really cool because, like, then, like, suddenly, once we've had this uh, workshop, like, everybody's super pally. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they want to know everything about me and my gear and uh, and why I do this. Mm -hmm. And especially because I'm a woman, like, I've been asked, but you're a girl, so why are you doing this? Uh, you know, and by the women, because they're not used to being in the lead they're not used to being at par also sometimes mm. with the men it's amazing um, that these workshops create a space where they feel close enough to you that they can ask you those questions because those conversations mm -hmm. is how you break down barriers and how you show that things are more accessible or at least kind of outline a journey I'm conscious we've been talking for a while but I did want to ask you a little bit about what's going on in Hampi at the moment Sure. Um, so I think this court hearing that the judgment that's recently been passed by the High Court was long pending. It's a it's this court battle that's been happening since the 2000 early 2000, I think 2002 or 2004 onwards. And uh, it's essentially for the commercial setup in the Humpy Island for that whole area to be demolished because. Uh, they've, you know, earlier they declared it as a you as a World Heritage site, and the other side of Humpy had been asked to get cleared out. But these guys, the fate of the Humpy Island was still dangling. But I think what happened was that initially the farmers were allowed by the court to till the lands on the other side of the Tungabhadra River when it was in low season because the river changes course mm -hmm. so um it's when it's high uh, you know you can't do anything but when the course is low the farmers were allowed to till the land there and then i think they started to build you know little hut structures etc mm -hmm. then over time the tourists were uh, crossing the river a lot and um the humpy island came about so there's this uncertainty about whether the constructions that now exist or existed until pretty much yesterday uh, are legal or not. The battle right now is, I mean, the case, the case is closed. They've, they've asked them to be demolished. I think right now they're just waiting to hear if the houses of the people are also to be demolished because the commercial properties have all been removed. And um, I think they're saying that no, I was recently talking to Jerry, who was uh, who's from the Tom and Jerry shop that's really famous. Okay. And um, uh, he was in Delhi, and I asked him because he, he's you know been a part of that. He's seen that place grow, and um, he said, I asked him if it's how is it going to change Humpy. He said the rocks are still going to be there, and mm -hmm. uh, it's probably 
going to shift the focus from that from that one belt mm-hmm. to the entire um, roadside and it's probably going to give more opportunity and um a lot of people are going to shift to that side probably rent is going to increase because everybody is going to have to lease out land so going to remain as a bouldering uh, you know spot but the vibe is going to change he said yeah it's going to be more spread out and um i think it will also lead to new area developments okay. from the rishimukh plateau which is where which is right in front of the goan corner which is where everybody like starts their day or uh with um but this is something that the people knew for a very long time that the, pro- the process was you know in court and the hearing was due and even the result of the hearing was you know people knew that it wasn't going to be in the favor of the um island side mm. um and now it's come down to in dilan's words words since we were talking about it literally yesterday to legality versus humanity where right. you know you it's difficult to process high court judgment for the layman versus people who no longer now have a house and have to like mm. move all their belongings like in 2 3 days time and the court says that they will be given you know a replacement for the land they've lost but when that will happen we don't know uh, mm. no one knows and the nature in which it has been conducted uh, you know the demolition and the evacuation whether it was you know right whether it was the right thing to do that's the question that the locals are asking yeah of course gosh it seems like quite an end of an era mm-hmm. for those people and and their their kind of lives and businesses and a lot of uncertainty yeah i i feel like um it's something that i don't know uh, when you don't have humpy grew like it mushroomed very suddenly right so i don't think these people knew when they opened with when they started out with huts and homestays that it was going to get so big and there is some role to play from i don't know um, apparently um people who uh, are business people who are who then feel good about so much business coming into this island mm-hmm. and that being one of the uh, lobbying sides to get this case moving forward even more and for it to come down like this and yeah i don't know uh, the government the government in india right now is doing a lot of things that uh, people find questionable okay right so it's it's a weird time mm. you can pretty much expect anything to happen that's all that's all i feel as an indian right now mm. well thank you for for talking about that and giving us a bit of it it sounds yeah it sounds complicated um mm-hmm. and like the the repercussions yeah, I, might go on for a while mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean for for us members we're just thinking oh no gone corner is not going to be there and all of those nice you know places and the shops and like you could it was a big reason for why hampi developed so much right because you could come back and have a great time in all of these places you could eat from israeli to uh, i don't know um, continental food and yeah. um, it added to you know the 
the whole vibe of the place and why people could stay there for so long. It was mm-hmm. also not very expensive. And another like developed place like that uh, to be falling apart is probably going to like, I mean, we, we as a country need more developing areas and more like uh, crags that, mm-hmm. uh, that you can actually stay and climb at a lot. Because that's important for the community to like learn and Humpy being a place that has been developed by uh, climbers from all over, from like really experienced climbers uh, from Europe and England. It's, it was the place where we came to have a sense of grading, a sense of style, you know, and uh, that was our comparative point. Because when we as a community develop new crags, and uh, it includes giving grades to roots. Mm. Includes understanding the even the grading process. I think for most climbers in India, that that came from Humpy. You know the the comparative uh, analysis probably because that's where everybody climbed so much on boulders that were set by folks who had climbed in a lot of other places and had opened a lot of other routes. Mm. This is something that we also faced when grading, setting the routes for ice, because we came from a point of like, I mean, I'd never climbed on ice outside on vertical frozen ice, and neither had Bharat. Uh, Karan had climbed some, but we we just uh, figured, you know, it, also because it's a thing that, I don't know, grading is complicated, especially mm-hmm. for somebody who hasn't done a lot of it. So apart from the fact that we came up with our own grading, which was a Himalayan water ice grading, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to just water ice, mm-hmm. uh, because of the altitude and because of the alpine terrain, it uh, it's something that we've formed on our own from how we feel about you know the parameters of the route and the style and the technique, etc. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's also part of the development, right? Mm. Looking forward with Hampi, I mean, maybe it's too soon to tell, but like, would it benefit the area for tourists to still travel to Hampi for climbing? Or is it something that's just a bit unsure at the moment? No, uh, the climbing is still going to go on. It's important that people still go because like, the locals are going to try and find means to stick around on mm-hmm. probably like, you know, on the other side, and people would want would be leasing out lands. Uh, there's already a, a couple of things that are coming around on the other side, and I think now when people go to Humpy, maybe the perspective can change from just like going to Humpy for a great like trip to actually contributing to developing new areas, maybe, yeah. and um, being more responsible as climbing tourists. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. Cool. Um, so before we finish, is there, do you want to tell people where they can like find you? Cause I know you have like a social media channel, channel and things like that. And I'll link to I a do. few like articles and videos and things in the show notes. If people want to look at that kind of stuff as well. So I'm the Pahari girl on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pahari is the person from the mountains. <laughs> so, um, that's where I put up most of my adventures and, um, yeah, um, awesome. there's Pitied Her, there's Climb Like a Woman, there's 
if they, if you want to physically find me, I'm pretty much attending a, a bunch of festivals that are organized by friends and uh, being there and representing in most of these spaces. So yeah, I'll be at the Suru Fest. I will be again in Spiti for ice climbing. If anybody wants, they can definitely hit me up. Um, and if anybody wants to help out with, you know, furthering our endeavor with Claw, with Climb Like a Woman, um, please get in touch. Awesome. Uh, if anybody wants to donate anything for um, what I do with Ecofem and donate pads, that would be great too. 